And so that place is called Gilgal to this day. Myth-making is an integral facet of human experience. If I get back home from the grocery store and say, I got everything I needed, my audience won't enjoy such a boring summary. But if I get back home from the grocery store and say, while perusing the produce section, I came across a stunning array of Honeycrisp apples, walked over to the grapes, and they were as firm as they've been in months. And then I ran into my friend Brittany while surveying the yogurt section. We caught up for about 10 minutes. I haven't seen her since before the pandemic. After I left the store, I passed a rack on 8th Avenue. The survivors appeared to be in fair condition. My audience will be pleased. In my own family, my parents would encourage me and my brother to give names and backstories to complete strangers in the mall. Life is bland without the myths we create, the myths we believe, and the myths that help us get out of bed every morning. In the fifth chapter of Joshua, we encounter a paradigm-shifting myth or what some scholars call a meta-narrative or overarching story that makes the ancient Israelites transition from peoples to a people. After 40 long years of wandering in the wilderness, more than 40 years after God speaks to Moses in the form of a bush ablaze but not consumed, the miraculous sojourn through the desert comes to an abrupt and almost unceremonious end. In church, we tend to emphasize the glorious climactic stories of the faith, the obvious demonstrations of glory, awe, and wonder. But stories like this one, stories in which a long journey comes to a quiet uneventful close. Don't get as much airtime, if you will. Who are the Israelites after the crisis, after the wandering, after the full deliverance? Who is God once you're no longer relying on miraculous manna and quail? when you're camping in Gilgal and realize you can now live on the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grains. And if you ask me, that diet doesn't sound much better than the manna diet. <laughs> but at least you're the one cultivating it. If God is no longer churning out heavenly hello fresh orders every day, what is God good for? But before those questions can even begin to be addressed, we are left with an urgent, pressing question related to our considerations from a little earlier. How do the Israelites create myths that accommodate their recent acquisition of land that previously did not belong to them? In four short chapters, Joshua chapter 9, close readers of the Bible will come across a sad and horrifying portion. 
the Israelites forcefully take the land of Canaan, the land God promised to them, the land flowing with milk and honey, the land that will be sweet on the tongue and nourishing to the body from the Jebusites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and other inhabitants. While that is not explicitly addressed in Joshua 5, it is implied. The produce they enjoy, the ending of manna from the hand of God, the land to tend, all of these developments take place because the produce was already being grown. The land was already being tended and cared for by any number of peoples. You see where I'm going. Violence of the personal and mass sorts is a steady feature of Scripture. From the earliest chapters of Genesis through the prophets, gospels, and the epistles, violence is a recurring theme because the Bible's about people and people tend to be violent. Cain kills Abel. Dinah is abducted and assaulted. King Herod orders the slaughter of boy children in the time of Jesus, and so on and so on and so on. If you're shielding someone in your life from violence in video games and on television and in movies, I do not recommend giving them access to the Bible. After the rise in the discipline of biblical archaeology in the 20th century, a new consensus around biblical violence emerged. According to Hebrew literary scholar Robert Alter, quote, the fact that this, that this narrative does not correspond to what we can reconstruct of the actual history of Canaan offers great consolation the blood-curdling report of the massacre of the entire population of Canaanite towns, men, women, children, and in some cases, livestock as well, never happened. The question is why the Hebrew writers felt impelled to invent a narrative of the conquest of the land in which a genocidal onslaught on its indigenous population is repeatedly stressed, end quote. There is good reason to believe, he goes on to say, that the Canaanites simply intermarried with the Israelites. He summarizes this passage by saying the following, quote again, this story of the annihilation of the indigenous population of Canaan belongs not to historical memory, but to cultural memory, end quote. And one way to think about cultural memory and historical memory is that historical memory is what happened. Cultural memory is how I felt when it happened. The ancient Israelites were an Afro-Asiatic Semitic people squeezed between sprawling empires that at any given time were eager to rule over them. And so when oral histories had been passed around long enough and it was time to start writing down their cultural memory, not their historical memory, the histories they'd survived and lived 
took on mythic proportions, not unlike my grocery runs, not unlike your Uncle Jerry's stories about his high school basketball career that we know probably wasn't as great as he says, not unlike your kindergartner's accounts of life on the playground. Like me, ancient Hebrew storytellers didn't want to bore the audience at home. But the question still remains, what are we, indirect inheritors of these stories of violence, to do with them. One possible approach is to behold the violence, mass, domestic, and otherwise, and interrogate it. Violence very rarely appears out of nowhere. Violence very rarely occurs in a vacuum. Violence is usually occurring on some sort of spectrum. Today's air raid is yesterday's rhetorical threat. Today's outburst on a plane is yesterday's Facebook comment. Today's shooting is yesterday's purchase and the Google search from the day before that. I remember being in seminary and hearing my Hebrew Bible professor, Dr. Judy Fentress Williams, describe how cycles of violence in families, communities, and nations appear throughout the memorable stories of Genesis, Exodus, Ruth, and other books of the Bible. If a cycle can be perpetuated, it can, it can, by God's faithfulness and God's love, be broken reimagined, healed, and set on a new axis, she would say. Which brings us back to our key verse. And so that place is called Gilgal to this day. Gilgal in the, in the original language means circle or wheel. And so when God says to Joshua, Today I have rolled away from you the disgrace of Egypt. We are witnessing a divine play on words. This place after, this, uh, after the wilderness, after your enslavement, after your distress. This place where I have rolled away your shame and the dimness of your past. This is the place you will call Gilgal. Because today, the cycle of wandering, the cycle of being anchorless, the cycle of being hopeless is broken by God. And don't we need some chains of violence broken in our own day, amen? State-sanctioned military aggression abroad and at home, war abroad, violence abroad and at home are not sustainable ways to live. And while strong men on numerous shores play prodigal, while millions of lives are pulled taut in tense suspension, God waits for us to come back home to that place of wholeness, what the Hebrew prophets and our Lord Jesus called shalom, where music 
peace, dancing, a fine robe, rings, and sandals for our feet are awaiting our return. Amen.